Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. With your host, Linnea Hubbard. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. I'm Linnea Hubbard and today is Thursday, October 13th, 2022. It's been 3,150 days since Russia occupied Crimea on February 27, 2014, and 231 days since the large-scale invasion of Ukraine began. Today's podcast looks at what happened yesterday in the Russia-Ukraine war. The Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Update is compiled by our team from around the world. Today's report includes information from direct contacts in Ukraine and their proxies, Russian Ministry of Defense reports, the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine reports, Operational Command South of Ukraine, Open Source Intelligence, our in-house team of analysts and geolocation experts, and pro-Ukrainian and pro-Russian mill bloggers and social media accounts with a track record of trying to be accurate. We have one mission, to report the truth, because the truth matters. Let's go ahead and get started with our assessment of the current status of the war. First, our assessment that Russia was incapable of sustaining its attacks on Ukraine's energy infrastructure was accurate, with only a handful of missiles fired yesterday. Second, the introduction of D-1 artillery pieces, which were first used in 1943, Russian troops being issued inferior AK-12 assault weapons, and Russia's announcement they were bringing 800 T-62 tanks out of storage for upgrades, indicate that the Russian Federation is running out of effective and modern military hardware. Third, Ukraine still holds the battlefield initiative, forcing Russian troops to remain in a defensive posture on all axes except Solidar Bakhmut. Fourth, we maintain that Russian terror attacks on civilians and civilian infrastructure will continue and could intensify. Fifth, Russian aviation continues to suffer significant losses due to the pressure being applied by the Kremlin for pilots to take more risks. Sixth, we maintain that if a Russian force of company size or larger surrenders in northern Kherson, it will create a cascade of surrendering Russian troops. Seventh, we maintain that mass surrenders could become a logistical problem for Ukraine, which could overwhelm the ongoing counteroffensive. Eighth, we maintain that using tactical nuclear weapons on the battlefield is highly unlikely, as it would require striking what the Kremlin believes is Russian soil, and, to be honest, Russian forces are incapable of fighting in a conventional environment, let alone a CBRN setting— that's chemical, biological, radiological, and nuclear. Ninth, we maintain we are in the mutually assured destruction instability paradox due to irresponsible language from the Kremlin, looming decisions from Moscow leadership, and the deteriorating kinetic warfare situation for Russian troops in Ukraine. And finally, we maintain our assessment that the Russian military in Ukraine is combat-destroyed, and has no meaningful way to respond to the ongoing and accelerating collapse on multiple fronts. Conscripts that were rushed to the Donbass have not slowed the deterioration and are not contributing to improving combat power. 
let's get some regional updates, shall we? Starting with the Kherson counteroffensive and Mykolaiv. Operational Command South, or OCS, reported a Russian platoon attempted to advance on Kostromka and Sukistavok, suffered heavy losses, and retreated. A second platoon of mechanized infantry attacked later in the day and was repelled after being hit by mortars. The Russian Ministry of Defense claimed there were much larger attacks in this direction and that their forces destroyed four crossings over the Inulets River. The Russian millblogger community, however, did not report any bridges were destroyed, instead mentioning that additional crossings were established and troop rotations were ongoing. All right, let's talk about this. It is assessment time. The Russian Ministry of Defense has suffered a harsh backlash from the Russian state Duma, state media, influencers, the millblogger community, for excessively optimistic reports after continued battlefield failures in Kharkiv, Donetsk, Luhansk, and Kherson. Despite appeals and outright demands for a more honest assessment, the Russian MOD continues to release questionable daily reports with exaggerated claims. Millblogger Ridovka is one or two steps away from propagandist, and even they reported, quote, positional battles are going on. The enemy, they mean Ukraine, is conducting reconnaissance in force and is concentrating forces across the Inulets River and to the southeast of Mykolaiv, end quote. This is in sharp contrast to the Russian MOD claim of four wet crossings destroyed and more than 90 Ukrainian soldiers killed. The Russian 205th Separate Motor Rifle Brigade has been in the news and intelligence reports for all the wrong reasons. The general staff of the armed forces of Ukraine reported 500 ill-equipped Mobics had been moved in to reinforce positions in Kherson. The deployment has been off to a bit of a rocky start, with their commanding officer, Colonel Eduard Yurievich, killed by a Ukrainian sniper in Borozensk on October 8th. Yurievich, who was 39 years old, was the 40th Russian colonel killed in action since February 24th. According to Russian reports, the fresh conscripts, who were ordinary Russian citizens on September 20th, have been placed on one of the most intense battlefronts in Ukraine. No pressure, guys. I'm sure you'll do just fine. OCS reported the Ukrainian Air Force executed 14 airstrikes and ground forces conducted 190 fire missions. Although the number of artillery and rocket strikes was the lowest in weeks, HIMARS was awfully busy. Reliable social media reports claimed there were two strikes in Komishani and another two in Novosburivka, and one each in Kherson, Bereslav, and Kozatsky. The general staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, or GSAFU, reported a rocket attack using HIMARS killed up to 150 Russian troops stationed in Tokarivka. Russian forces have established up to four temporary crossings at the Kachovka Dam and continue reinforcing the dirt and gravel crossing they created. There is an unconfirmed report that there was an assassination attempt on Boris Chebukin, a Russian collaborator and the director of the State University of Ukraine. His car exploded in Novokachovka, although it was unclear if he was in the vehicle at the time of the blast. Our assessment here? We maintain that Ukrainian forces are in an operational pause while continuing with positional battles, 
suppress and destroy enemy air defense, supply interdiction, probing for weaknesses in Russian defensive lines, and maintaining fire control over the Inulets River. Let's move on to Dnipropetrovsk and northern Zaporizhia. Power was knocked out to the Zaporizhia Nuclear Power Plant, or ZNPP, forcing operators to use emergency backup diesel generators. The International Atomic Energy Agency, or IAEA, reported the loss of the 750-kilovolt line was caused by the destruction of an electrical substation, quote, far from the plant itself, end quote, indicating the power loss was related to Russian missile and drone strikes on Ukraine's national power infrastructure. Engineers were able to re-energize the power line about three hours later. Cooling of the six reactors, which remain in a cold shutdown state, was not compromised, and there were no radiation leaks. There was no information on the status of the deputy general director of ZNPP, Valery Martunyuk, who was kidnapped by Russian troops two days ago. Nikopol was hit with over a hundred grad rockets fired by multiple launch rocket systems, or MLRS. One rocket made a direct hit on a home, critically injuring a 33-year-old woman and her six-year-old daughter. The girl suffered traumatic injuries to her legs, requiring a double amputation to save her life. The rocket attack damaged over 30 high-rise apartment buildings, three schools, and several businesses. A second attack damaged a cathedral of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. Valentin Reznichenko, Dnipropetrovsk Oblast administrative and military governor, reported that, quote, energy infrastructure was attacked in Kamyanskia and was severely damaged. It was not indicated if the morning attack on Kamyanskia and the power outage at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant were related. This was the third day in a row the transformer farm was successfully attacked. The number of missile strikes on Zaporizhia declined dramatically, with one S-300 anti-aircraft missile used for a ground attack landing in a field by a playground near a large block of apartments. Hi, this is David Obelt. I'm the Chief Content Officer for Malcontent News. I hope you can join me on October 16th for our Sunday podcast. We'll be joined with Jamie Reif. Jamie Reif is the project manager for the Russia-Ukraine War Factbook, written by Craig Reed. He has some tremendous insights about the ongoing war in Ukraine and the history that brought us to where we are today. Let's shift gears for a moment. You had talked about the impact that drone warfare has had in Ukraine. How do you think that this will change other conflicts going forward? There are a thousand different uses you could do for individual type drone, and the Ukrainians caught on real fast. In fact, they have a special what I call a proto-military unit. They had been an IT enthusiast, a drone uh, hobbyist, who uh, uh, quickly got involved from the first day of the war, and they used their drone knowledge to, to participate in the, in the defense of Kiev. They were so wildly successful that they, they got military commissions. I really hope you can join us. Now to the Donbass region, starting with southern Zaporizhia. Russian forces shelled settlements from the Donetsk-Zaporizhia administrative border to Huliapola to Orikhiv to Mali-Shirbaki. Orikhiv was intensely shelled through the day, with more than 300 strikes across the city. 
The attack was so intense that the city leaders asked residents to stay in shelters and advised that emergency services could not respond to requests for help due to the extreme danger. Ukraine destroyed three more S-300 anti-aircraft missile launchers in the Tokmak area. It's premature to state that ongoing suppress-and-destroy enemy air defense activity has hit the launchers firing on Zaporizhia, but as previously noted, the number of rocket attacks on the city declined dramatically after two days of strikes by Ukraine destroyed a total of nine S-300 launchers. Russian state media claims a plot to cause, quote, riots in Melitopol was foiled when FSB agents infiltrated a resistance group and made arrests. Russian mill bloggers continue to report that Ukraine is preparing a large counteroffensive and building up troops in the Orekhiv region. The Russian information space has been claiming a Ukrainian offensive will start in this region for almost six weeks now. In southwest Donetsk, the Donetsk People's Republic, or DNR Militia's public relations channel, did not report any major combat today. They claimed their forces destroyed two M777 artillery pieces, including support vehicles. Ukraine launched 140 fire missions into the occupied territories. The GSAFU claimed that the 1st Army Corps of the DNR and other Russian units were ordered to enter an operational pause due to low morale, increasing desertions, and poor training of recently arrived MOBICs. Operational tempo along this front has decreased significantly over the last week, and there has been no indication that recently arrived conscripts have increased combat capabilities. There was only positional fighting in Marinka and reconnaissance in force outside of Krasnohorivka, southwest of the city of Donetsk. Exiled Mariupol mayoral advisor Petro Andrushenko reported that Russian supply convoys moving through the occupied city had increased significantly, and occupation forces were setting up temporary warehouses. The increase in supply traffic may very well be due to the damage to the Kerch Bridge that leads to Crimea. In northeast Donetsk, our assessment that the reported fighting near Mykolaivka was likely a reconnaissance or sabotage squad was accurate. There were no further reports of fighting in the area from either belligerent. Russian troops attempted to advance on Smyrna, suffered a severe case of acute high-velocity lead poisoning, and return to their defensive positions. Quick sidebar here, that means bullets. The acute high-velocity lead poisoning is bullets, it means they were shot at. East of Solidar and southeast of Bakhmutska, there was only positional fighting. Southeast of Bakhmut, fighting was less intense, with Ukrainian forces able to reinforce new defensive lines, and the private military company, or PMC Wagner Group, consolidating gains. The GSAFU reported that an attack on Ivantrad was repulsed, while Russian sources claimed the village was captured yesterday. I feel like someone is not being entirely honest. The 1st Army Corps of the DNR 3rd Brigade, possibly supported by fresh Chechen troops, continued their attempts to advance into Mayorsk and also tried to advance on Ozaryanivka. They continued to be unsuccessful and... I don't want to get your hopes up with the Chechens once again on the axis. They have yet to release their new album. When it does drop, we expect it to be a compilation of their greatest hits against signs, 
windows, and or traffic lights. Let's move on to Luhansk. The only verifiable report of fighting was near Novosadov, with Russian troops trying to advance on Ukrainian positions on the east bank of the Jerebets River. They were unsuccessful and didn't even get a mention by the Russian Ministry of Defense, which continues to report that Torske and Terny were recaptured with entirely zero supporting evidence. Pro-Russian sources continue to report fighting for control of Raikhorodka, 11 kilometers west of Svatov. Russian forces are reportedly blowing up bridges and laying minefields in anticipation of another Ukrainian counteroffensive. Pro-Russian sources consistently report that Ukraine remains on the regional offensive. In the Hirskizolot area, Russian troops continue to build World War II-style defensive lines with tank traps, dragon's teeth concrete blocks, Czech hedgehogs, and trench networks. The defensive network is being built only 20 kilometers from the current line of conflict. The construction of these static defenses does not inspire confidence that Russian troops will be able to hold Svatov, Kremina, Severodonetsk, Lysychansk, or Popazna. We had previously reported that reliable sources told us that Russian D-152 mm howitzers, first used in 1943 and last used in Vietnam, had been taken out of storage and would be provided to the 2nd Army Corps of the Luhansk People's Republic, or LNR. There are now reports that the artillery pieces, with a whopping range of only 14 kilometers, are in use, somehow. The D-1 uses different artillery shells from more modern 152mm Soviet-era systems, and the last shell built was reportedly produced in the 1950s. All right, it's assessment time. If the Russian Ministry of Defense has had to activate D-1 artillery pieces, it indicates they are at the end of their reserves. Russian troops and their proxy forces have reportedly exhausted the supply of 122mm ammunition for D-30 howitzers, with the production of those shells ending in 2018. The 1st and 2nd Army Corps reportedly received worn-out D-20 howitzers to replace their D-30 guns, but the Russian Ministry of Defense is taking those pieces back and replacing them with the World War II D-1 pieces. We assess the supply of shells will be limited and have a high failure rate due to the age of the munitions and notoriously poor storage techniques by the Russian military. Pro tip, don't smoke around them. On top of that, given the D-1's limited range, they will be highly susceptible to counter-battery fire. Serhii Haidai, Luhansk Oblast administrative and military governor, reported that of the 200 surviving members of the Russian 3rd Guard Spetsnaz Brigade, which were recently demobilized, half have requested early dismissal and are refusing to fight. The unit reportedly suffered a 75% casualty rate while defending Lehman. The elite units are part of the Russian GRU, and the experienced and highly trained soldiers will be very difficult to replace. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers, and analysts is funded by readers, listeners, and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at Malcontent News. 
Moving on to the Kharkiv region. Pro-Russian sources reported that Ukrainian forces had advanced into the western part of Vilshana, northeast of Kupyansk. Based on this report, we've coded Liman Pershi as liberated. If Russian troops remained in the town, they would be completely encircled. Also, Ukrainian troops were reportedly advancing on Orlyansky and Pershotravneve. Some assessment here. Ukrainian forces appear to be pushing toward the P-66 highway, a vital G-lock, that's a ground line of communication, a supply line, for Russian forces supplying Svatov in Luhansk. By clearing the last pocket of Russian troops out of northeastern Kharkiv, Ukraine could bring the highway under fire control and use special operation forces to harass supply shipments. In the Cherniev and Sumy region, the Sumy Oblast remains severely impacted by Russian attacks on electrical infrastructure. Although fewer than 8,000 households are without power across the region, there are rolling blackouts to prevent the remaining infrastructure from becoming overloaded. Officials told residents that power outages would be limited to two hours and appealed to people to minimize electrical use in the mornings and early evening hours. The GSAFU reported the village of Hai in Cherniev was shelled by Russian forces firing from across the international border. Very quickly, in the Kyiv region, at the time of recording, there was a report of a kamikaze drone strike in Kyiv, but there wasn't any additional information available. In western and central Ukraine, Ukrainian air defenses appear to be adapting to the Iranian-sourced Shahed-136 kamikaze drones. Two were shot down during an air raid in the Venetia Oblast. At least one cruise missile was intercepted in the Cherkasy Oblast, and two more, quote, air targets were downed in the Riven and Zhitomir oblasts. Ukraine reportedly lost a MiG-29 near Venezia after the aircraft suffered a catastrophic mechanical failure. The pilot was able to eject without injury. On the Russian front, Russian air defenses decided to work today, but not the way the Russian Ministry of Defense hoped. Russia fired S-300 anti-aircraft missiles from Bilgorod, likely targeting the city of Kharkiv. In an apparent lack of coordination, air defenses in Bilgorod were activated and the missile barrage bound for Ukraine was successfully shot down. That will go in the book as an own goal. Look, we don't create the news, we just report it. In the infamous words of NAFO, the North Atlantic Fellas Organization, which is definitely a serious organization, quote, What air defense doing? End quote. New pictures of the Kerch Bridge show that the damage is more extensive than the Russian government claimed. What? No. The Russian Ministry of Defense would never release an inaccurate report. The remaining road section, which has been reduced to a single lane, suffered severe blast damage that deformed the roadway and caused significant damage to the bridge pillar. A new satellite image from Maxar shows that limited car traffic is moving on the damaged road section, while rail from the damaged fuel train remains on the tracks. Ongoing repair work could be seen on the second rail line, confirming it was also badly damaged in the attack, and the bridge remains closed to rail traffic. You know, I am just so shocked that the Russian government, of all governments, didn't accurately report the situation to the Russian people or to the world. That is so surprising.
Due to the damage, trucks and military equipment are being shipped by ferry boats, with the wait now four days long and almost a thousand vehicles waiting to cross into Crimea. Yesterday's report by the Russian state media agency Zvezda News that repairs will take four to six weeks appears to be accurate. Let's talk about developments theater-wide and outside Ukraine. The United Kingdom will provide Ukraine with advanced medium-range air-to-air missiles, or AMROM, and the United States committed to providing additional NASM's air defense systems. United States Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin announced significant progress after the sixth meeting of the Ukrainian Defense Contact Group, which took place in Brussels yesterday. The meeting reached an agreement to improve Ukraine's air defenses further, as well as discussions on providing longer-range weapons and more artillery. The Ukrainian Air Force reported that five Russian Ka-52 helicopters were shot down, including four over an 18-minute period. Government officials said there are pictures and photos to support the claim, and they will be released. 17 Iranian-sourced Shahed-136 drones were also shot down. Speaking of shot down, let's talk about Russian mobilization. Russia announced the nation was taking 800 T-62 Soviet-era main battle tanks and would be upgrading them over the next three years. The T-62 started production in 1961, with the last new one built in 1973. Some of the tanks underwent a modernization program in the 1980s, and before June 2022, the entire inventory was stored in reserve. Modernization will include night vision and thermal sights and improvements to armor protection, which is inadequate for the modern battlefield. The fact that Russia is going to modernize the 60-year-old design while not upgrading the main gun— which has a maximum effective range of only 1,700 meters, is a flashing red warning light that its armor forces are exhausted. According to the Oryx database, which uses visual confirmation, Russia has lost 1,328 main battle tanks after 33 weeks of war in Ukraine. Experts estimate the actual number is 25 to 30 percent higher, because not all losses are documented. It is the worst loss of armor forces on the planet since the first Gulf War in 1991, when Iraq lost up to 3,100 tanks. In our War Crimes and Human Rights segment, we discuss events that might be upsetting to hear about. There is no graphic detail in today's report, but if you are sensitive to descriptions of human rights abuses, please feel free to skip ahead to the next segment. Timestamps are in the description. Russian forces shelled a market in Avdivka, killing seven civilians and wounding 13 more. The city has been constantly shelled since the opening days of the Russian invasion, with workers at the coke plant remaining in the city to maintain its operation. Investigators found four more bodies in Lehman as they continued to sweep through the recently liberated city. War crimes investigators found a 25th victim of the civilian car convoy that was attacked by Russian troops in Kupiansk-Vuzlovi on September 25th. A 75-year-old woman was able to escape the massacre after being shot and crawled through the woods about 200 meters before she died. 
Investigators also said they found the firing positions the Russian soldiers used to ambush the caravan. In geopolitical news, the United Nations General Assembly condemned Russia's annexation of four Ukrainian oblasts. The resolution passed with 143 nations supporting, five against, and 35 abstaining. The only countries that voted against the measure were Russia, Belarus, North Korea, Syria, and Nicaragua. Cuba, China, Pakistan, South Africa, and India were among the nations that abstained. Ten nations did not participate in the vote, including Iran and Venezuela. Diplomatic experts note that Brazil's vote in support of the measure was significant, as the nation had previously abstained on other resolutions. The resolution calls on the international community not to recognize Russia's annexation claims and demand its, quote, immediate reversal. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky said he was grateful to the countries that supported it. Russia attempted to make the vote a secret ballot, but the General Council rejected the measure. The Kremlin responded to the vote by releasing new maps showing the annexed territories now part of their nation. In economic news, the ruble was unchanged, with an exchange rate of 64 for one U.S. dollar. Oil prices continued their downward trend, with WTI falling to $88 a barrel and Brent dropping to $93. RBOB wholesale gasoline on the spot was almost unchanged, trading at $2.63 a gallon, or $0.70 a liter. Chicago SRW wheat futures dropped to $8.87 a bushel for December 2022 delivery. And that's what we know. I'll be out of the booth for a few days, but in the meantime, David will make sure you get all the news, and of course, don't miss his interview with Jamie Reif on Sunday. I'll be back with you all on Monday with more updates. Until then, stay safe, everyone. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.